Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland on News Talk. Hello and welcome to Future Proof, the podcast. This is the show where we take a closer look at the world around us. My name is Jonathan McRae. As always, we salute and commend you for downloading, rating, subscribing, letting people know about the podcast. It is how we grow as a radio show and as a people. Um, this episode, we're going to talk about obesity. And it's kind of weird that we haven't gotten there sooner because we, we've talked about so many other things around this subject, but we haven't been talking about these new drugs that are on the market that are doing amazing things for those who are suffering from obesity. They are so effective, in fact, that there is quite a large side market for people who don't have obesity but want to lose weight and find it difficult. We're going to be asking, what's the ethics there? What do these drugs do? And could we very soon cure obesity? If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us, science at newstalk.com. You can tweet us, we're at Newstalk Science. First, though, it's time to look back at the week's science news. And joining me is Dr. Ruth Freeman from Science Foundation Ireland and Dr. Shane Bergen from UCD. Our first story, Ruth, has to do with the naked mole rat. Naked mole rats. I know this is a little rodent. You normally find them in East Africa, but unfortunately for the naked mole rats, they're very, very interesting to science. And that is because they live an incredibly long time in a very kind of healthy and happy way. So your average mouse or rat might last maybe three years, but these guys can live over 40 years. Very low instances of inflammation, very low instances of cancer. So they've been well studied in labs. And one of the... And they can breathe like, they can breathe in, in pure meat or something like they can live in they're just robust as hell they're very very robust and 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 one of the genes that seems to be responsible for their kind of unusual resistance to cancer which is something that's been really well, well studied is high molecular weight hyaluronic acid so the thing that we're hearing about all the time that we should be putting on our faces to keep them young and actually there is an interesting study which says you also get that in Sharpay dogs these very wrinkly dogs and actually naked mole rats have this really wrinkly skin as well so, yeah. so, so who knows what's going on there but but this team in Rochester University identified the gene that codes for these high molecular weight hyaluronic acids and they transferred Sorry, it. When you said that we're hearing all the time that we need to put them on the face, am I on like a totally different algorithm to you or who's saying that? I think there's a lot of beauty products now saying put hyaluronic acid on your face, on your hair. Never heard of it. Okay. What? There you it's go. a we're science buzzword. Oh, Mar- Marais like, is nodding. Yeah, Shane is okay. nodding. I'm obviously Look not at my face. <laughs> 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 Look at all of our faces compared <laughs> you to yours, John. Oh, okay, that's cold. <laughs> go on. Anyway, so they took the gene responsible for coding for this protein from naked molars and they made mice with this gene in them to see if, it, if they could essentially transpose this longevity into another species. And it, and it turns out it had a pretty dramatic effect on these mice. Um, So they found that these mice lived on average 4.4% longer. Uh, They had lower sort of, they looked at the whole transcriptome of these mice, so essentially all the genes that are turned on and the profile as they aged was not as aged as one would expect in the control group of mice. So they had lower levels of inflammation uh, and they had a much healthier gut. So they they not only lived longer, but they seemed to live longer and better. And, And it's really interesting because, I mean, one, it's only one protein here, which is obviously, you know, aging is such a complex process, yet this one protein seems to be having quite a fundamental impact. And it's really the first example where we're just taking something from one species and showing that we can transplant that longevity effect 
directly into another species. Um, so really, really interesting work. So unfortunately for the mole rats, I think we're going to be studying them Digging for some time deep for to a come. while, yeah. yeah. Well, they seem to be, uh, nothing seems to bother them, so maybe that's okay. Um, in terms of the, the this longevity gene, I know no one likes putting it inverted commas about uh, and mm-hmm. then, then the word gene, but... Um, how do you transplant that to another species? And is this is this something that we, we could do with humans? Yeah, I mean, look, and obviously that that's the obvious next question. What about us? And I mean, I suppose there's two things that the research is looking at because we also produce these high molecular weight hyaluronic acids ourselves. So obviously we could try to enhance the synthesis so we make more, but maybe less sort of interventionist would be to slow down the breakdown of this hyaluronic acid in us, which is actually what also seems to happen with this gene in the mole rat. It's sort of producing it and, and, it, and it, it remains. So that they are looking at a compound now that can sort of prevent the breakdown of this, which might make it persist in humans. Um, so that might be a way that we can we can also get the benefits of the naked mole rats. All right. Um, Shane, our second story uh, has to do with uh, an invention which served me well for the first 10 years of my life, but I, I, I had laser surgery and I haven't worn contact lenses in 20 years. So um, what's this about? Yeah, but would you wear smart contact lenses, Johnny? Would you wear... You definitely would. I don't even, yeah, he's <laughs> nodding. So if you could imagine getting rid of all your devices, and just having it built into your eye, right? So you could see notifications, directions, even entertainment. Uh, would you How many likes that? I've got? I can see how many likes <laughs> exactly. I've got in my eyeball. In wow. your eyeball, exactly. And so believe it or not, people are working on this. And in terms of the flexible screens, you'd need to do it. The science or the technology is actually fairly advanced in really? that regard. It is, yeah. And so even like for though, for though, when I was doing my PhD, we would have spoken about making roll-up televisions and things like that. Things made out of nanomaterials that had the flexibility, the strength, and also the, the, the electrical capacity to power these things. But the big issue was, how are you going to keep this thing going? Where's the, where's the charge going to come from? And that's what this paper is about. It's from Singapore and it's published in Nano Letters. And they have built a smart contact lens that is powered from your tears. What? Yeah. Imagine. So the sadder you are, the longer this lasts. Um, to do with the salt, I would imagine. Yeah, it? exactly. So right. the salt. Yeah, absolutely. So batteries work by, by basically converting chemical energy into electrical energy. And in order for you to do that, you have to set up what we call a potential difference, right? It's like a charge gradient within the battery from the positive end and the negative end. And that drives electrical current and that can make your your device work. Yeah. And so they're using... He says like he has any idea how electricity works. (laughs) Nobody does, Jonathan. Nodding. (laughs) So that's the basis here of the electrical power for this smart contact lens is the salt in your eye, the Na plus and the Cl minus. That's salt, right? NaCl. And so that can drive enough charge to power this very primitive, but yet very promising device. And it's built using well, nanomaterials. That's the that's the infrastructure within it. But realistically, we're not going to have a screen. Like we're not going to be able to have a screen with, with readable words that small on a contact lens that's usable, right? Yeah, you would. So like it's it's just like having any display, except it's in your eye. So 
Like it's But like how like that small we can create screen I mean presumably very primitive, like we're not talking like high definition screen. Well at the it? moment it's primitive, yeah. Well, like, you know, it'd be very primitive at the moment, but there's absolutely no reason why you couldn't. Um wow. so isn't it incredible? I would not put this in my eye. There's absolutely no way yeah, but, like, I would put nanomaterials in my use, eye. There's definitely use cases for it. And if it'd been proven, of course you would. If it had been proven to be safe and well, there were there were use cases for it. I mean there are definite use cases. Well, um, absolutely, of course. If it was proven to be safe, there would have gone through rigorous um, processes to yeah. ensure that it's not going to, to damage you. And the reason you couldn't do it at the moment is because batteries that we have are brittle. And so if it was to break in your eye, you'd be in serious trouble. Yeah. Pretty cool. Although the eyes are quite robust, robust as well, I think. We have to do a piece on eyes, Murray's Eyes are fascinating. Third story. Um, they are. <laughs> third story, Ruth, has to do with women surgeons and medical outcomes. That's right. So this is, it's actually two studies that came out in the Journal of the American Medical Association surgery uh, this week and they're both observational studies so they're looking at outcomes after surgery and they're comparing in this case whether the surgeon was a man or a woman. Uh, So the first study was from researchers in Canada and the US and they looked at over a million patient records from Ontario going back over a number of years and they found that patients that were treated by female surgeons had significantly better outcomes than those treated by men. Um, So they looked at a couple of different things. They looked at 90 days and this was a broad range of different surgical procedures so heart, brain, bones, various different things and they found that 90 days after an operation just under 14% of patients that had been operated on by a man had some sort of adverse event after the surgery. And, and that's kind of a big catch-all for minor events all the way down to, 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 to major things like heart attacks or strokes. And the figure for women was only 12.5%. So, so that's quite a significant difference, you know, number, number of people that, that had a better outcome. And they then went back and looked a year after surgery and here they found the difference was even bigger. So those operated on by men, just over 20% had some, uh, or sorry, 20% uh, for women, but 25% of those seen by a, by a male surgeon had some sort of event post-operatively. Um, and, and the same result was seen then looking at Sweden. It was a smaller study, but it was still... 150,000 people. Uh, It was just about gallbladder surgery, so it wasn't the broad range of surgery, but it still had essentially the same outcome. There was far fewer complications and shorter hospital stays for those treated by, by, by women surgeons as opposed to by men. Um, And this is kind of now a consistent data trend that we've seen. I could actually only find one study which found comparable outcomes, and that was a Japanese study. And in that case, only 5% of the surgeons were, were women. And I think, you know, that there may have been other confounding impacts there in Japan where, where we know there's very low rates of gender equality. I can, I can feel my face scrunching up, uh, uh, trying to figure out why this would be. Um, that's, not, that's not to take away from the brilliance of surgeons of either gender, yeah. but why would we see... So, I mean, that's just 5% after, uh, after yeah. a year is a significant amount of time. I mean, it's probably not going to be a surprise to anyone working in a hospital that we don't have really, really good metrics around what happens in a surgery. Like a lot of times, surgeons are just trying to get things done. They did find women seem to spend a bit longer uh, on the operations and they tried to correct for things like level of experience the you know the how sick the patients were going into the surgery and obviously because the data set was large they could do that to some extent um but you know obviously there are far fewer females in surgery so so I think in Ireland it was as low as 12% only a few years ago it's up to about 20% now 
you know, in terms of experience level, you know, we have fewer women leaders in surgery. Um, but but this effect does seem to persist. I mean, women were less likely to have to change course during procedures as well. So they were less likely to have to switch from, say, a keyhole procedure to to an open surgery. Right. Um, and, and again, the same team last year looked at the outcomes for women and they found it for women patients, mm. it was particularly important to have a, a female surgeon because, because that effect was sort of amplified by the fact that, that actually having someone of the the same uh, sex operating on you seems to improve the outcomes also. Really interesting. Our, our final story, Shane, has to do with music for babies. Absolutely. And it's not the kind of, you know, wheels on the bus. This is any sort of music. And it turns out this study uh, that was done in Philadelphia shows that it can reduce the amount of pain that an infant experiences when it's getting a, a heel prick test. So this is something that babies that have just been born get in order to to test for various conditions. And it was long actually thought that these uh, small infants couldn't experience pain the way we can because of their brains. That's been debunked. And they have looked at the effects of playing music um, when the children are having these these heel prick tests. And so they took 100 infants and uh, for 54 of them, they played music uh, before, during and after. Like anything, like... Corn or the no. soundtrack to Seven or... I don't know what those things are, so no. Okay. So they played Mozart and um, so nice and calm, right? And uh, they found and, that... And, and, and license free, I think. Yeah, right. yeah, that's the key thing. Exactly, yeah. Spot <laughs> the guy who worked in music for a long time. And researchers, this is this kind of weird bit, wearing noise cancelling headphones assessed the children's pain. And they looked at four categories, facial expressions, crying, obviously, limb movement and breathing patterns. And they were able to score the pain from zero to seven. And they found that everyone had a score zero before they got the the test and that there was a significant lower score for the children who were listening to music than those who were not listening to music. And that's the extent of this study. It's very small, really, compared to what Ruth was just talking about a moment ago. But you know what? If it's easy to play music when you're doing these things and there is this um, this effect, well, why not just do it? Yeah, like, no harm. You know, no harm. Absolutely. Uh, Dr. Shane Bergen and Dr. Ruth Freeman, thanks very much. Now, with weight loss drugs like Wegovy and Ozempic on the international market, the way we approach the condition of obesity is undergoing a seismic shift. Joining me to discuss this is Dr. Margaret Steele. She's a postdoctoral researcher in UCC's School of Public Health. Uh, welcome to the program, Margaret. Maybe we might start off with, um, because it's, a, it's, it's the term that's thrown around, but what is the, the scientific definition of obesity, please? Well, I suppose in some ways it's controversial, right? But straightforwardly, say the World Health Organization definition is that obesity is excess weight or excess adipose tissue that poses a threat to health or that may cause an impairment to health. But you can see straight away that's confusing, right? Because... Yeah, you can see by the look of my face. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Like there's, you know, we're kind of, is it... Is it unhealthy to have a high BMI? Is that automatically unhealthy or is it associated with a risk of ill health? So there's a little bit of confusion around that term. And in a sense, really, what we have is a situation where the word obesity has two different definitions now, scientifically. It has the definition of body mass index, which is if your body mass index for an adult, for a white adult at least, is 30 or greater, you're in the obese category. But then we also have this other category, which is a disease of obesity, a chronic disease that, you know, increasingly doctors now treat. 
And while a high BMI can be a very, very common symptom of that disease, it's not in itself a diagnostic test and it's not definitive. So are you saying that there are some people who may have a a very high BMI that are not obese? Yeah, there's I mean, so there is quite a bit of discussion in the literature. It's not settled. It's a controversy. It's you know, it's a matter of debate. But there is how is it a matter of debate at this stage, Margaret? I mean, God, we've been talking about nothing else for for the last 20 years as we've seen um, BMIs and uh, weight gain across the entire uh, developed world. Well, I mean, this is why partly um, myself and my colleague Francis Finucane, who is a bariatric medicine endocrinologist in Galway and me coming from more of a public health and theoretical perspective, you know, we, we published this paper recently discussing how we need to think about two things separately. One is the population phenomenon where we've seen a massive increase in the, you know, the average, the mean body sizes of people. And then there's a separate issue where we've also seen an increase in the number of people presenting in a clinical setting with cardiometabolic complications related to adiposity, which is, you know, these are two separate things, right? The fact that the population has been getting fatter is not necessarily in itself a problem. There's every reason to believe that this is just what happens when everybody has enough to eat for more than a couple of years at a time, which never really happened before in history, right? On the other hand, then you do have an increase in things like diabetes. We've seen, you know, non-communicable diseases, cardiovascular um, health risk factors and diseases. They're all increasing. But what we don't really know for sure is that it's just the fact that people are getting fatter that's causing these problems, because it could also be that what's causing both the increase in body size and the increase in cardiometabolic complications is a change in the environment. And like, so for example, if you consider, I think it was last year in the US, something like maybe less than 50% of new cases of type 2 diabetes were in people with obesity. So there's quite a lot of people developing type 2 diabetes and they're not in the obese category. Um, Wait, I mean, I thought it was a really... Uh, like you know specific and um, well identified fact that if we put on weight that's bad like uh, you know be above a certain level uh, obviously but once we get to being what would you know on a bmi level be categorized as obese i thought that was just bad and that wasn't really up for debate in terms of for our health by the way not in a judgment way yeah 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 no i mean it is up for debate and part of the reason that we have this debate, I think, is because we've confused the population level with the individual level. So at a population level, what you see is a lot of small increases in risk. So there was a classic epidemiology paper originally published in the 1980s by Jeffrey Rose, and the paper was called Sick Individuals and Sick Populations. And in this paper, Rose advanced the what's now kind of widely accepted, uh, what he called the, the prevention paradox. So you would think that to prevent some kind of a serious health outcome, you should target the people who are at the greatest risk. And they should, you know, whatever the intervention is, whatever the change in behavior or environment that's needed, it should be focused on the people who are, you know, most at risk, who have the worst kind of risk profile but in yeah, reality I'm really I'm really really <laughs> yeah, interested to see where this is twist, going yeah. right because this is why it's called a paradox because it's not intuitive right but what it what he argued and you know convincingly I mean it's been widely accepted now 
is that what you really need to do is you need to target the entire population with kind of you need to make very small changes in the risk profile of the entire population. And that way, most people won't directly benefit from it, you know, because you won't be making a big enough change to make one individual healthier or less healthy. But what you will do is by catching everyone in this big wide net, you will catch those people that are also at very high risk and you will reduce the overall number of cases. And also, of course, you'll catch cases where the people weren't on paper at high risk, but actually were. So what that has to do with obesity is that we've seen two things happen at the same time. We've seen an increase in the mean body size of people in most countries in the world now, and certainly a a marked increase of people at very high weight in Western rich countries. But we've also seen an increase in cardiometabolic disease. And there's been the assumption that the relationship between these is causal on an individual level. But in fact, we really don't know that yet. We really don't know that for any given individual, weight gain in itself is causing all those problems. It may be, but it may not be. And there are mechanisms by which, you know, having too much adipose tissue is directly harmful. So for example, if your fat cells are all filling up and multiplying and they're squeezing to the point where, you know, you're you're having cell hyperoxemia, you know, you're Um, sorry, hyperoxia, where, you know, the oxygen isn't getting to the cells and your body kind of goes into a panic mode and your inflammation and you're at greater risk of, you know, your immune system is compromised. So there are direct mechanisms by which adipose tissue can be very harmful, but that doesn't occur in everybody at a higher weight. And it also can, you can see similar effects in people who are at a normal weight. So for example, in the case of something like lipodystrophy, where People can't store fat correctly, but they're not they're not storing it at all, really, except in these kind of the wrong places, so to speak. Well, one of the other things I noticed last month was a, a very interesting finding. It was reported in Nature um, that a large American study looked at the BMI and found that people who are overweight in that overweight category, as opposed to the healthy category, were living longer and that perhaps the BMI as it is set is it is slightly too uh, um, severe, which would be great because I'm right on the edge. <laughs> um, but but uh, but but it seems that there's a lot of rethinking in this area, and 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 not just um, uh, to do with you know populations. Also, these new drugs that have come out, uh, come out, Ozempic and Wigovi. Um, can you tell me a little bit about what it is they do in the body and why they are such a huge deal in the fight against the obesity pandemic? Yeah, they, I mean, you know, sometimes with new drugs, you hear things like game changer and, you know, revolutionary and you kind of think, yeah, okay, that's the press release. But in this case, this is something that doctors are also saying because it's, you know, with the advent of these medications, which act on the endocrine system. So they act on our hormones. They they kind of reset the messages that our brains are sending to our bodies about hunger and satiety. What you get there is you're actually kind of treating the root cause. So in this case, and it, it only, you know, in a way it only shows the fact that it was never as simple as eat less and move more because what happens is when people take this medication, now it doesn't work for absolutely everybody, but it seems to be very effective. And most people who take these medications do 
maintain clinically significant weight loss and quite a lot more. What's yeah, I mean, let's let's just let's not understate it. For a lot of people who uh, who have been you know really struggling and have tried everything, these drugs are doing what nothing else could do before for them. They are losing dramatic amounts of weight in some yeah. cases, and and that I suppose that is um, also something that that's caused a problem in terms of demand and misuse. But we'll talk about that in a sec. Yeah, so like, so one of the drugs, which is Manjaro, it's a different company. Novo Nordisk makes um, Ozempic and Wegovi, but this is, um, I think it's Eli Lilly. In their phase three clinical trials of terzepidide, which is marketed as Manjaro, you know, a huge majority of the people in the study achieved, well, everybody in the study achieved a mean body weight loss of over 20%. Now that's massive. So in placebo in that study, I think the placebo group achieved about a 3% change in body weight, which is kind of what you would more or less expect from weight, you know, eating less, moving more, maybe a bit of psychological support, that kind of thing. Um, But 20% is massive. Like that's... That's a a leg and and the head or something. Yeah. It's a fifth of your body weight. It's insane. Yeah. And in a lot of cases, it might not be quite that much because some people in the study would be a lot heavier and some would be less. But like traditionally in the last kind of 20 years or so clinically significant weight loss was said to be maybe around five to ten percent you know if you could get to that it was like wow you're a huge success story and now we have people losing maybe 20 or more percent of their starting body weight and it is very significant and the reason it seems to work is because it just removes that constant physiological hunger because the issue with people who have what we now call the disease of obesity, it's not just that they overeat, it's that their body constantly tells them to overeat in exactly the same way that a thin person's body tells them to eat when they're hungry. Yeah. So you're literally physically hungry a lot of the time. And that's, you know, it's it's not much easier to resist that than it is to stop breathing, to hold your breath for a long time. You know, you're fighting physiology, whereas when people take these medications, which regulate the response to insulin and in this, you know, they originally started as medicines for diabetes because they regulate the the flow of insulin and they allow the body to kind of almost reset to healthy hunger and fullness cues. Once that happens, people seem to actually find it pretty easy to eat, you know, the diet they might have wanted to eat before but couldn't stick to. And that kind of really shows that this is a brain issue, that this is a it's a hypothalamus issue. It's not a willpower issue or, you know, calories in, calories out, which which I mean, up until maybe, you know, five years ago, people were, you know, being laughed at by by proposing this idea that obesity and weight gain is not just about calories in calories out because how how could it not be? It's a simple mathematical equation. And I've you know, I've heard people not so long ago saying that, you know, it's as simple as that, but we're finding that actually it really isn't. So what does that mean for um, treatments, both um, pharmacological and uh, and, uh, uh, interventions that are maybe lifestyle for the future of obesity in Ireland? And do we need to change the way we think about body size versus being obese? I would argue that we definitely do need to rethink our approach to body size. Because one of the issues is that there are benefits to weight loss, but a lot of the time, if somebody doesn't have a clear medical condition, so if they don't have, say, for example, high blood pressure, 
they don't have you know, some kind of dysfunction in the cardiometabolic system. We're assuming that if they lose weight, their body will behave like the body of a person who was never fat to begin with. But really, mm. that doesn't seem to be the case. So the issue, the, the there's partly the problem on the side of the problem. It's not clear at all that just simply having more fat tissue is the problem. It very much depends where it is in the body and how it's functioning. And then on the solution side... Which sounds almost like cancer. Like there are some cancers that are benign and, it, you know, do not affect the functioning of the body and cancers around your organs or cancers that are not benign can be hugely problematic. Yeah, exactly. And again, like, you know, as with certain cancers, what it comes down to is how the cells are multiplying and, you know, what what, what they're doing if they're kind of just sitting there. Like, for example, the metabolically healthy obese phenotype is associated with people having more fat stored in their legs, you know, as opposed to, say, what, what we mean, central adiposity. So having a, a big beer belly can be more associated or a higher waist circumference is associated with a lot more risk, whereas having maybe fatter legs isn't such a problem, partly because it's just sitting there on the subcutaneous level. It's just there where fat is meant to be, where we were evolved to store fat and there's no issue. Hmm. But when your fat cells start to multiply in places like the liver, for example, is a very clear case where that's very dangerous and harmful. Um, So from a prevention point of view, then, I think we need to stop focusing on trying to prevent people getting fat. Because that, to me, that's the equivalent of trying to prevent people coughing or having yellow staining on their fingers that's not the issue the issue is if people are smoking cigarettes they're right. they're, they're in trouble and similarly i think the issue is people eating a diet that's high in fat salt and sugar um people being in a food environment where there's constant triggers to eat yeah um those foods i think that's the prevention focus it doesn't matter like what matters is that people are healthy. It doesn't matter how it makes them look, right? That's an entirely yeah. separate issue. Look, just, I wanted to finish on this because unfortunately people are people and fashion is fashion. And uh, at the moment being slim uh, or, uh, you know, athletic is a fashionable look. And that may change over time, but that is the fashion at the moment. And people will um, look to drugs like um, Wegovy, Ozempic and other things um, and we see in America that there are people who clearly are not suffering from the, the disease of obesity but are using these to get slimmer. First question is, is that, you know, is that ethically wrong for people to do that? And secondly, um, if we had a limitless supply of these drugs, is there anything wrong with, and I'm, I'm talking hypothetically here, you know, uh, sprinkling some Wegovy on our Cocoa Pops in the morning to to maintain a, a, a nice uh, body uh, fat level while being able to eat the foods that we would like. Yeah, I know the first thing is probably go easy on the Cocoa Pops, right? They're maybe not the best choice. But yeah, I mean, if we had an unlimited supply, I mean, I don't think there's an ethical issue with people taking it on an individual level. I'm just, you know, my personal opinion is that people are entitled to pursue their embodiment goals you know, as long as they're not hurting others kind of thing. Well, but I mean, I do. guess at the moment there is a shortage of these drugs, yeah, right? So exactly. using them for yourself when people who have a medical condition need them, that 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 is probably, but maybe that's not, it's more, that should lie at the door of the doctor or, or the seller, right? I think it has to be, I think it has to be a combination. The doc, you know, doctors clearly have, um, have responsibilities here. I really don't think it's an issue in Ireland. Like, as you said, this is more of a phenomenon in the US where people are using compounded 
chemicals, so they're not actually taking the same medicine from the same supply chain. So, so theoretically, there it, it may it may in the future, if supply continues uh, and the demand for it, which which I think will continue, it may be um, something that um, people decide to to use for regulation of their weight. Um, I mean, realistically, knowing what humans are like, you think that's what? Yeah, possible? I mean, realistically, I do think that's possible, and mm. particularly rich people, you know, people who have the disposable income. But obviously, I would sound a note of caution. I mean, we have to some extent been here before with things like Fenfen in the 90s, where, and even, the, you know, benzodiazepines and, you know, stimulants in the 60s and earlier times where, you know, you suddenly had this kind of little mother's little helper pill that everyone could pop and it would be okay. And of course, those turned out to be very dangerous. Like, it seems at the moment that the GLP-1 drugs are safer, but, you know, nobody has been on them for 20 years yet. So, you know, you really don't want to commit to long-term medication. The other thing is that for quite a lot of people, you can't stop taking it. So it would be a lifetime commitment. You know, you wouldn't, you can't just sort of take it, lose the weight and then stop. And there are yeah. side effects, which, which yeah. do need to be considered, of course. Um, and, and I suppose that's a hypothetical, but as a, an avid reader of 2000 AD, you know, these these uh, concepts of, you know, take a pill to make you something was always, you know, this sci-fi um, environment. And it, it never worked out in the in the comics. And I'm wondering, will will, will that play out uh, forever in the future in, in, in various loops? So um, really, really interesting uh, speaking with you. And thank you so much for your time. Uh, that's Dr. Margaret Steele. She is a postdoctoral researcher in UCC School of Public Health. I feel like in the past couple of years, we've made some serious breakthroughs in terms of um, treatments for a number of different conditions. And it does seem like hope is on the horizon for a number of people. The idea that we could solve obesity, the, uh, the disease, is pretty spectacular love to hear your thoughts on that you can email us science at newstalk.com or you can find us on twitter we're at newstalk science uh, and particularly if this is something you have struggled with your whole life um if, if someone is out there who has really struggled with obesity is this something that you are excited about um we're just going to go to some of your comments from last week now if you remember on the podcast we were talking about um the womb transplant, the first ever successful UK womb transplant. Uh, we spoke to Connor Garrity, who's from First IVF, and he's a consultant gynecologist at Rotunda and Beaumont. And uh, Colm in County Kerry says, what I don't understand about the womb transplant is how come that woman can have a baby so quickly? Wouldn't it need a year or so to heal and settle before it could take the stress of childbirth? But the doctors were talking about pregnancy starting in the coming months. Um. I'm not a doctor, Colm, but uh, I guess uh, now the in, in the coming months, bearing in mind she has had the transplant for a good few months already. So it's not, you know, it's not three months or anything. But yeah, it does. It does seem very quick for something so radical. Um, but, you know, this is the first in the UK, but there have been um, about 60 or 70 um, successful ones worldwide. So um, they have a bit of data on, on how soon they can um, start thinking about um, impregnation, I guess, or um, implantation. Um, we were also talking to Mark Post. He's a Dutch pharmacologist and uh, he's a professor of vascular physiology at Maastricht University. He's also um, involved in creating uh, 
artificial meat. And that's why we were speaking to him, uh, because 10 years ago, he created the world's first cultured lab meat burger. Real meat, but cultured from cells, so ethical. Um, Amy says, people like real meat, and this lab-grown crap is not our sort of thing. You can't expect people to eat this. Well, I don't expect you to eat it, Amy, after that comment. Jamie says, I liked meat too, but I like animals more, so I stopped paying for people to harm them. It's as simple as that. Uh, fair enough. Fair take, Aunt Jamie. Chris on Twitter says, people can't even pronounce half the ingredients in the food they already shovel into themselves, yet this will get them up in arms. I mean, most people are just, no, thank you. But, um, you know, in terms of the harm to animals, there is none. Um, and in terms of the harm to the planet, well, the the engineering, I suppose, is, uh, is is the problem. But if they start making it en masse, it will be a lot better for the planet than growing cattle, is my guess. Maria says, that's not meat. It's some concoction of junk created in a lab. It's not meat. It's not food. I will never eat it. And I will never make you, Maria. Ellen says, why would anyone eat lab-made products? Because it's not popular, is it? Who are the beneficiaries financially of this? Who retains ownership of the product? Is it not experimentation? It's a step too far, in my opinion. Um... Well, look, I mean, all of us eat lab-made products all the time. I mean, food labs make food all over the all over the place. And there are there is experimentation with food and products and different um, processing techniques to make delicious flavors and colors and so on. That happens all the time. That something happens in a lab is probably, it, that's a good thing because labs are generally quite well controlled for bacteria and they're quite clean. And that's where you probably should start off making your food products is my, my thoughts on that. Who are the beneficiaries financially from this? Well, the people who are selling the burgers is my guess. Um, who retains ownership of the product? Well, once you buy the burger, I think you then own the burger. Is my, is my thinking? I don't think this is tricky. Am I missing something? Is it not experimentation? Well, it is experimentation. Um, but then that is the way of uh, human nature, and it is you know experimentation is good. You know, if we didn't have experimentation, we would never have had the cronut. And that's uh, that's the end of that argument, I would imagine, Ellen. Uh, but uh, it's a step too far. I mean, look, we, we, the, the problem is that the people sometimes don't realise the world is changing, right? And because the world is changing, we have to adapt. And we can't keep doing things the way we were because we now are at 8 billion people or wherever we are. We have um, huge reduction on our ability to, um, to to make meat because of the uh, greenhouse gases we're, 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 we're causing. So there's a whole bunch of these things that mean that we have to change the way we do things. And this is just one way. And it allows people to eat the food that they want to eat, but it's ethical. And in the long term, it will be much more um, environmentally friendly, is my guess. Another person says, if it's plant-based or grown in a lab, then it's not meat. Well, what's your definition of meat then? Um, because, uh, I mean, like, is, it, is one single cell meat? Because this is cells put together. And isn't that what happens when animals grow? Cells divide and you have more cells? I don't know. Another says, nothing about how they taste compared to real meat. No, um, no, there isn't. And, and you know what? You, you, taste is something you can't really read off the internet, is it? You need to know it was amazing. Although even the plant-based burgers are pretty good. Like those beetroot-based ones, you get the Manity Rockets and a few, few other places. They're pretty good. I like. I think we've gotten to a pretty good place with a veggie burger personally uh do you agree you can email us science at newstalk.com if you can tweet us uh we're at newstalk science thanks to producer marais o'sullivan and the team simon keen john byrne steve daunt and hugo de silva on sound we'll be back with more future proof in your podcast feed on tuesday in the meantime stay curious